0: Our scripture reading for this morning, our New Testament passage, comes from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 37, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and be glorified and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First and go and be reconciled, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way, or your adversary might hand you over to the judge, and the judge might hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And truly I tell you that you will not get out until you've paid every last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard, it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, which is God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make a single hair white or black by it. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. It's a word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, the biggest piece of advice that I was ever given by a devout religious uncle of mine when I was learning to drive was, don't ever put a Jesus sticker on the back of your bumper, Kate. Especially if you learn that you have road rage. You don't want to give strangers or God forbid anyone you know a way to identify you. It's not a good look. He acted, he spoke as though he was somebody who knew what he was talking about. Now, at the time, nobody would have predicted that I would become a pastor, but as I stand before you today, I have to concur with my uncle. Wouldn't be a good look, would it, for Pastor Kate to be driving down the road having road rage? Now, I'm not admitting to road rage, but we do live in the state of New Jersey, And, if you know the kind of car I drive, you'll notice at some point that I, in fact, do not have any bumper stickers on it. So, at the very least, I will admit to you that this advice stuck with me. Implicit in my uncle's advice is the idea that, as Christians, we are called to be a witness, a kind of moral leader, or exemplar, people who publicly share our faith, or at the very least, to the best of our abilities, attempt to live above reproach, so as not to incriminate ourselves or the name of God before others. It's a largely biblical idea, as Jesus would say in this passage, people who follow him are called to be salt and light, a city on a hill, and all that. And he did task his followers again and again to share their experiences of God with others because it was through their witness that God might just unexpectedly show up in the world for other people. As we've been saying, God sometimes does throughout the season of Epiphany. But perhaps this idea makes us squirm just a little bit The idea that Jesus might call those of us who follow after him to publicly share our faith. Maybe because if you had an upbringing anything like mine, you imagine that people who share their faith are the ones evangelizing out on street corners, yelling and waving signs that read, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And you don't really want to do that. Or maybe you're uncomfortable because you've experienced firsthand or you have long studied the ways that religious zealots for centuries have done damage to the name of God. Or maybe it's quite simply that less and less of your friends are looking for religion in their lives and you don't want to be the weird one. Or... Maybe they practice a religion that's different from yours and they are okay with it, and in fact, so are you. So all this considered, is there any reason to witness anymore? Is the call of Jesus to share our faith story with others simply timed out, no longer trending like that old track suit or those furry boots that you've got at the back of your closet hoping they'll make a comeback? i got to tell you, they're not going to, so you could probably get rid of them. Or is the call to share our faith still relevant somehow? And if so, what exactly is that supposed to look like? There was one other message, implicit in my uncle's advice to me. It was that in order to be an effective witness, we have to hide our shortcomings. Don't go to therapy for your road rage, Kate. You don't need that. Just don't out yourself publicly with one of these. I actually might get one of those in the future, I'll be honest. We can't own that we're screwed up. We can't admit that maybe we're not quite as compassionate or merciful or just as we might seem, because our human flaws, they chip away at our witness, don't they? And we don't want to look like hypocrites. So what do we do instead? Well, for most of us, we hide. We learn to tell a doctored narrative of our lives and our history and our faith to make us look better than maybe we actually are. And recently, I have begun to wonder if this has in large part been the problem all along for people of faith. In this text that we read for this morning, Jesus tells a crowd following him that if they want the spiritual secret to abundant life, they are going to have to look elsewhere than to all the religious and devout people of their time. The people who've convinced themselves that they were on the straight and narrow because they hid behind all their laws and religious rituals. See, these religious folks, they hadn't killed anyone or anything. They even served their communities in semi-meaningful ways. But they also had this way of looking right past what was supposed to be at the heart of all their rituals and their service and their God. Sure, they gave a little. They allowed others to come and give portions of their grain from their land as a part of their regular offerings to God, but they turned a blind eye to where all that abundance came from, mostly reaped off the backs of others. They preached reconciliation and love in the temple, but at home they lived under this cloud of self-righteous indignation, making themselves into a divine image while chipping away at the dignity and humanity of others, most especially the ones who they felt were beneath them or who disagreed with them or who inconvenienced them or who called them out or got in their way. They proclaimed the good news from their scriptures for the poor in body and spirit. That is, until they met real ones along the road who they treated as objects to ignore or exploit. They didn't hate, per se, but they were tempted to retaliate. They cared for their neighbors, but they also made excuses for why they could include the one, exclude the ones that were less than neighborly. They didn't mind-giving some, but they also made sure no one would forget when they had. And if they stopped long enough to think about any of this, they might have recognized that that's what they were doing. But so often, these habits were largely unconscious. It was built into the very fabric of how they were taught to live and think and maneuver in this world. And the worst part, The part that actually kept them from abundant life, believe it or not, was not actually that they weren't perfect. It's that they became pretty proficient at pretending to be. Pretending so that others, at best, might see them for who they desperately wanted to become, and at worst, so that people wouldn't discover who they really were. This largely well intentioned game that we play to keep others from seeing who we really are, it is an odd one, isn't it? Futile, truly. Do we honestly think that we're deceiving anyone but ourselves? In a book that I was reading this week, I was reminded that when our religious forefathers, the Puritan separatists, came over from England and developed the first settlements in this new America, they came with a desire to share their faith. To create a more faithful church than the one they'd been suffering under in England. Founding religious leaders like John Winthrop, they gave sermons using Jesus' call in this passage to be salt and light. And a city on a hill to tell settlers that they were chosen by God to use this new world to spread a new and more exceptional way of life in the faith. The narrative that was told during these early days was that God gave this land to these men, tasked them with creating a more faithful city of God, and that everything they needed to do thereafter was sanctioned for this noble cause. And as the years have worn on, the story we most often hear, particularly in our political election cycles, is that our country is exceptional because it was essentially built from nothing. Nothing but the God-given ground beneath our feet, at the hands of these brave men who built us up into the prosperous nation we are today. Many even still believe that God played a very active role. But we now know that this can't be the full story we tell, right? Telling it this way might keep our moral image intact and may make us feel good for however brief a time, but it hides our collective shortcomings. That nearly 50 million Native Americans died at the hands of this in-part Christian history, with many more being permanently removed from land they built their lives upon, like the Lenape tribes who lived on the land in our backyards. It hides this version of the story. It hides that over the years, much of our American dream was built not from nothing, but on the backs of brown and black Bodies, a choice that nearly all of us benefit from today. Our own denomination struggled in its earliest days to uphold the abolitionist values of John Wesley, and telling our story without these details obscures the part where at the end of the day there cannot actually be much godly justification for any of it. Let's zoom in a little to our day-to-day lives, into our homes, and our workplaces, and our communities, because we are just as resistant to be open about the ways we struggle there, too. We hide our unwillingness to apologize or admit when we're wrong, our struggle to love well, The urge we feel to hate and mock and alienate people we disagree with to put them in their place. We hide our battle with shame, with depression, with failure, with grief. We hide our relationships that are struggling, that our time is mismanaged, that our ambition is suffocating, that our habits are unhealthy, that our focus is self-centered. Or that our anger is spiraling out of control. We keep trying our darndest to be salt and light by hiding all of these things and more. By building ourselves up and our reputations up to be as strong as we can be and as powerful as we can be and as successful as we can be, we become known as the exemplars everyone should watch or envy or follow. We position ourselves among the most righteous or most pure, marching alongside the living God. And for what? Do we really think that's what God needs or ever asked from us? Do we think there is a single person in this place that isn't struggling somehow and some way? Is this all our public witness has become about? It seems to me that Jesus does challenge his followers to witness to their faith in this text, to share the ways in which the dark corners of their lives have been lit up and reshaped and transformed by a living God. But to get there, Jesus had to remind them that they needed to become acquainted with the dark corners first and admit to them, to admit to their incessant conflict to using all of their religious rituals and righteous footholds as a mask for all their rage, to be done with their excuses and to quit preying on the vulnerable. You know, we don't do any favors to anyone by hiding what hurts within us, by only ever presenting our best selves to the world, Or by thinking that being a witness for God is fundamentally about reinforcing our power, or our strength, or our talent, or our holiness, or our grasp on truth. Because none of it's true anyways. If anything, it's as D.T. Niles once wrote that the Christian practice of sharing our faith is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And quite honestly given that we are a people who willingly join ourselves to a long, fraught history of Christ followers who up until this very hour haven't always been excelling at sharing the good news of Jesus in a way that's actually good for anyone but themselves? Perhaps the very best form our public witness could take at a time like this is in our commitment to the long, hard, and humble road of practicing repentance and reconciliation for all the ways that we have gone wrong. You know, an encounter with the radical love of God, it's supposed to take what's broken and make it new. The Bible tells us that it heals shattered bodies, that it bandages gaping wounds, that it gives hope to the hopeless, and it redeems the irredeemable, and it frees people from their chains, and it raises life from the dead. But how in the world can anyone ever know this, that such a thing is possible unless we are willing to show them our scars? How do we... Expect those who right now are bleeding out in the streets or in their relationships or in their lives, how are they to know that they're not alone unless we share with them that we bleed too? How does anyone believe that they're worth a second or third or fifty-third chance unless we can admit that we've also needed them from time to time? Will the world... Ever learn to see and protect the divine spark that animates every person and every blade of grass and all that's in between if we cannot fess up to the ways our eyes have missed it and we've needed to go before God and ask forgiveness and help to begin again? If you and I are called to some moral example in this life, if we are called to be people who share our faith with others, I think it probably looks more like this than anything we've ever tried to make it. And in the season of Epiphany, when we remind ourselves that the love of God promises to show up and breathe new life into our dry and weary bones, into the chaos of this world, into unexpected times and unexpected places, perhaps, if we learn to get this one thing right, we might just find that the love of God does show up and does make new in the most unlikely place of all, in the lives of imperfect people, like you and like me. Let's pray together. Gracious and holy God, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the ways in which you are calling us to be made new. Draw our attention to the dark corners and places in our lives, and in this world, we've all got them. And give us the courage to ask you what we are supposed to do about it. God, help us not come into this space or any space pretending to be anything but what we are. Broken people who are desperately grasping at a second chance. To be made new. And in the name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said together, Amen.